This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to a recap of our latest Third Thursday webinar. Hear directly from expert panelists as they discuss Parkinson's research and answer your questions about living with the disease. Join us live next time by registering for an upcoming webinar at michaeljfox.org. Hello, and uh, welcome to our webinar today. Uh, I am Brian Fisk. I'm co-chief scientific officer here at the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, and uh, really excited to uh, be hosting our, our great panel today and discussion about uh, all the progress that we're seeing in Parkinson's research. So uh, it's near the end of the year for, for us here, and uh, our teams are really busy trying to get out the last grants for the year and you know planning for next year. Uh, but it's always great and a great opportunity to pause for a moment and, and just you know talk a little bit about the progress we've seen this year. So I'm, so I'm really excited to do that. We're going to talk a lot about a lot today. We're going to try to run through this pretty quickly, but we want to give you as much sort of insight on progress as, as possible. We'll talk a little bit about sort of new treatments that we're seeing coming uh, through the pipeline. We're going to talk about some of the advances we're seeing and how we can better measure and and, and track Parkinson's disease. And, and we'll also talk about some exciting work that we're doing to, around the idea of potentially even preventing Parkinson's altogether. Uh, so we have a lot to discuss, but first I want to introduce uh, my colleagues and our panelists today. Uh, so first, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Shalini uh, Padmanaban, who is our Vice President of Discovery and Translational Research. Uh, hi, hi, Shalini. Uh, next, we have Dr. Uh, uh, Jamie Eberling. Uh, she is Senior Vice President of our Research Resources Group. Uh, hi, Jamie. Hi, everyone. Uh, and finally, we have uh, Dr. Katie Kopel, who is uh, Senior Vice President of our Clinical Research Team. Thanks. Excited to be here, Brian. Great, great, great. So uh, let's get started. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, so before we kind of get into talking about the progress we're seeing, it's, I think it's important to always start with an understanding of kind of what we're trying to do. What's the, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And so uh, we like this um, sort of slide because it helps frame, I think, what uh, the real challenge of Parkinson's disease is, is that it's not this sort of static disease, but it's uh, it's a progressive disease. And what that means is that really when someone is initially diagnosed with the disease, and that's usually defined today by uh, someone coming to the doctor and presenting certain movement um, symptoms, so slow movement, rigidity in the muscles, maybe resting tremor, uh, that's really just sort of a, a symptomatic moment in time of what is really a, a progressive disease that um, uh, starts at that, uh, maybe starts symptomatically at that point, but then continues to advance with other symptoms and other complications becoming uh, a problem over time. But even before that moment, we know that the disease is, is, is happening, that it's sort of simmering underneath, uh, uh, leading to maybe some some symptoms early symptoms that people don't necessarily always think of as Parkinson's disease, but maybe predictive of, of later Parkinson's disease, and certainly an underlying biology that is that is being impacted at those early stages. So we're going to, this framing I think is important because you're going to hear us talk a lot about over the course of the, the next hour, um, the different ways we're thinking about um, this sort of progressive disease and how we think about treatments and how we think about measuring uh, along the spectrum and even ultimately how we might even be able to find those people at the earliest, earliest stages and, and maybe even delay uh, the onset of the disease altogether. So we wanted to start here just to, to get this into your brains and, and sort of have you thinking about this this, this framing. So I uh, uh, wanted to start off first really with thinking about treatment. So this is, I think, obviously where many people are excited to hear about progress in Parkinson's. And so when we're often asked, you know, what's, you know, what's the latest and sort of, you know, how close are we to the cure? Uh, this is really a good place to start because I think it's important to know what we can, what types of treatments we're seeing and what types of treatments we think will be available soon. So, Shalini, uh, I'm going to start with you in, the, in this, this section to kind of help me walk through the progress we're seeing. And I know our team is probably following, I think last I checked, you know, more than 170 therapies and, and clinical testing, meaning that they're actually being tested in humans today. Uh, and that's really exciting to, to understand that. But obviously, with so many different treatments, we can't cover all of them. So it's probably helpful for us to kind of break this down a bit. And we thought uh, what we could start first with is um, actually, you know, sort of reorder this slide a bit is let's talk about first of all, how we can treat symptoms today. 
So we have obviously a lot of approved drugs. Um, uh, it's been great you know, since 2014, I think 18 drug approvals for Parkinson's, which is amazing to, to think about, you know, all seeking to sort of target and, and sort of reduce the impact of symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And so I wonder if you could kind of walk us through some of the advances we're seeing there. And I know there, there's some exciting updates about some potential new approvals coming up soon as well. Yeah, sure, Brian. Um, so yeah, so as everybody knows here, levodopa, carbidopa, is really currently the gold standard medication for people with Parkinson's. And what it does is that it provides dopamine to the brain to basically help with movement. So this is a symptomatic therapy, Brian, as you highlighted, which means that it only helps manage the symptoms, but doesn't really treat the underlying cause of the disease, which is why you know we are investing so much in research to understand what the cause is. Uh, however, even with symptomatic treatment, many patients have to work with their doctors to find a dose that works for them so they don't experience many off periods, uh, which are the periods between doses that causes the Parkinson's symptoms to reappear, and also to prevent some of the side effects of the medications, especially with prolonged use. So over the last few years, we've seen many approvals um, that help manage uh, some of these issues. And these have generally been uh, tweaks to the way the medication is delivered. Uh, and we have two more uh, in this category that are now awaiting a decision from the FDA. So these include um, AbbVie's new formulation uh, of levodopa that can be infused under the skin. Um, so to provide more of a continuous dosing of levodopa uh, so patients experience fewer off periods, as well as we have a second um, drug, which is uh, from Amniel Pharmaceuticals, which is a pill that contains both of an immediate release as well as an extended release. So which means you'll have some part of the drug that's you know, released to the body immediately and some that's released slowly over time again you know, this is to better control the symptoms for a longer period of time and to prevent patients from experiencing a lot of off, um, you know, periods. And both of these, as I mentioned, are with the FDA now, and we will be hearing from the FDA, you know, early next year. So very, very exciting new formulations um, in this category. We also did see one recent approval um, of Divi, which is basically an easy-to-break tablet of levodopa, carbidopa, so you can more precisely control the dose. Some people may want to kind of, you know, stagger their doses over the day, and some people may need lesser early on in the disease. Um, so these uh, kind of, you know, treatment options really help with managing uh, symptoms currently. Yeah, no, and it's, so it's exciting to see these, you know, again, new uh, approaches to in maybe an existing type of drug. Uh, again, you're replacing dopamine is something we've been doing for many years. But uh, I think when we see innovation like this to help, in a, as we talked about before, especially as the disease advances, it can get complicated sometimes even just simply uh, delivering dopamine. And so new ways of doing that can help, I think, reduce some of those compl complications. So, so we're always excited when we can uh, see advances in that space. So let's talk about the uh, kind of diving a little bit deeper into the into the pipeline, you know, some of the other sort of symptom areas that we're, you know, really looking at and really excited to see progress. Sure. So I think this is very interestingly because uh, when surveyed, actually 50% of people with Parkinson's had indicated that their symptoms related to movement were most bothersome. And even within this category, it was gait and balance, you know, those related to kind of precise movements um, that seem to really affect people the most, especially as the disease advances. So to begin to tackle uh, this issue, we are now funding a com company called Takeda to test a drug for improving gait, so help people walk better, balance better. Uh, this is a phase two study, so we learn if the drug looks promising or not to address the symptom. Interestingly, this drug will also test if it can improve memory and cognition in people with Parkinson's, so kind of, you know, testing two symptoms, you know, with one pill. So very, very exciting, um, you know, funding in this area. Um, this is a challenging area to study uh, because especially I think with laboratory models, it's not easy to study gait and balance because these are all very relevant and, you know, specific to a human condition. And so we earlier in the year actually hosted a workshop that brought together drug companies, researchers, you know, talk a little bit more about gait and balance in Parkinson's disease. And we're now walk working through some of the recommendations, which just includes how do we better measure uh, some of these aspects in people with Parkinson's disease. How do we understand the underlying mechanisms that contribute to some of these issues, especially, you know, as the disease progresses? And how do we then better treat it? So a lot of work to be done in this area, but we've heard time and time again that this is an important and um, area of research for us to consider. Um, 
I think similarly, I think, as I mentioned, you know, 50% said that that was their motor symptoms that were most bothersome, which means that at least 50% of people indicated that it was the non-motor symptoms that were most bothersome. And amongst this, uh, I think things that keep coming up over and over again are cognition, pain, sleep, et cetera. And these are very, very challenging for us to study. So uh, I think we need to really go back to the basics because it's very different circuits. We don't understand what really goes wrong in people with Parkinson's. Are they the same you know, mechanisms that are at play or are they different for people with Parkinson's disease? So we actually launched a funding call earlier this year to bring in you know, ideas from the community to better model some of these symptoms in the laboratory setting so we can better understand the circuits or the mechanisms that are at play both not only in the development of Parkinson's symptoms, but also in how they progress in these models, and then hoping that you know, we could find better treatments. So we got a lot of interest from the research community. We have lots of ideas that we're now kind of scanning and evaluating, and our hope is that we'll fund at least a diverse set of symptoms you know, that we can tackle in the coming years uh, through our funding programs. No, and I think that's that, that last point is really critical. You know, we've, we've wanted to see more therapeutics being developed against some of these other symptoms. And there are a few approved ones, you know, over the last several years. But like, like you said, I think the, the complexity of the biology underlying some of those other symptoms is, is, is sort of hard to crack. And, and so, it, you know, we may have to put a little bit more funding and sort of stimulate more research in those areas. So, so it's exciting to see that, that, that happening. Um, so let's move from sort of the more symptom treating approaches and really think about, I think, what many, you know, are sort of hopeful for as kind of a, the holy grail is, you know, treatments that can actually maybe slow the disease process down, so that, that can target the sort of underlying mechanisms. And, and certainly over the last 20 years, we've just seen an explosion of, of, of research that's really, I think, um, uh, increased our understanding of these mechanisms and, and, and now have moved those ideas actually into drug development and, and including some, some approaches that are in clinical testing now. So well, talk us a little, bit about what some of those, you know, critical mechanistic targets, as they call them, uh, are and uh, what kind of progress we're seeing. Sure. So as I mentioned, I think in order to identify drugs and therapies that can either slow or modify the disease course, we need to better understand the underlying mechanisms that play a role, right? And this has, again, you know, been an area of active research because we're now learning that there are multiple triggers of the disease, genetics, environment, a mix of the two, and these are different in different individuals and different in different stages of the disease. So you can quickly see how complex you know, this biology gets. Um, however, what we have learned is that in a vast majority of individuals with Parkinson's, there is misfolding or aggregation of a protein called alpha-synuclein, both in the brain as well as in the body. And now we have about 15 different therapies and clinical trials that aim to either decrease the amount of alpha-synuclein, increase kind of disaggregation of clumped or aggregated synuclein, and prevent spreading of alpha-synuclein. So as the disease advances, you want to prevent that spreading. So of course, most of our treatment strategies are attempting to hit you know, one of these areas. So just wanted to highlight a couple of trials that focus on maybe preventing the spread of alpha-synuclein from one cell to another. And these are um, antibody or vaccine-based approaches or more broadly categorized as immunotherapy approaches. So as most of you heard, you know, Roche is one um, company that tested an antibody to neutralize uh, the alpha-synuclein that's you know, transferring from one cell to another. Uh, we have another approach, which is uh, the approach from vaccinity, which is more as you know, what we call as an active immunization approach, which means we actually inject a fragment of alpha-synuclein that causes your body to then produce an antibody to tackle these toxic clumps as they're transferring from a cell to cell, from one cell to another. So these approaches are both in phase two and phase one, respectively, and will actually be a good proof of mechanism studies for the field because we've done enough studies uh, you know, with, uh, around these approaches in preclinical models in the lab. And I feel like now the final test is really you know, in the clinic. So very, very exciting uh, times, and uh, we will learn a lot more as a Parkinson's disease uh, kind of community. Um, the other Thing that we're also learning is about the genetic causes of Parkinson's disease, and there are two genes, uh, LERP2 and GBA, both of which have been implicated in Parkinson's disease, and we're now testing several drugs against these gene targets to determine if they're actually beneficial uh, in patients who carry mutations in LERP2 and GBA, so just wanted to highlight uh, one quick one, which is a recent partnership between Biogen and Denali that has enabled phase two and phase three studies of a LERP2 kinase inhibitor 
Interestingly, these are being tested not only in individuals who carry the LERC2 mutation, but also in one of the trials, these are being tested in people who have PD but don't carry the LERC2 mutation. So this is kind of you know bringing the drug more widely making the drug more widely available to the community, and that's because the underlying biology between these two groups of patients may be similar, at least in a subset. So that's again an interesting kind of proof of mechanism study that we will be seeing that's being tested in human studies. Again, Brian, these are just a few you know examples or highlights. We have many more targets for Parkinson's that are being tested. Um, and these, you know, cover a wide spectrum of mechanisms, you know, some that improve the energy, you know, producing functions in the cells, some that aim to restore the recycling capacity of cells, and some that even modulate the immune system. So there's a lot of exciting things. And hopefully, you know, by next year, we'll have some more kind of moving into the clinic. Yeah, no, and I think that, that that's an important point, too, because I think from our perspective at the foundation, you know, for us to sort of look at the therapeutic pipeline for Parkinson's, you know, we want that diversity and mechanisms being looked at uh, and explored. It's sort of, it's for us, it's sort of a key measure of the health of the pipeline. If, if they were all only looking at one idea, uh, that would be, I think, a, a little bit too risky in our view. And so we like to see these different mechanisms. Um, so uh, uh, we're going to move on here in a second, but just a, a call out to the, uh, the participants today. If, if you want to learn a bit more about some of these therapeutic areas, uh, you can uh, check out this year in review publication that's listed here on the slide. It's, I think, also link in your resources uh, um, page on the screen. Um, and you can learn a little bit more about some of the, uh, of the areas that, that Shalini and I talked about. So uh, let's move on and talk about another really critical part of this. So we can think about you know all these great therapeutic ideas that we can sort of target and, and try to address in, in clinical studies. But one of the real big barriers to that is if you don't know how your drug is ultimately working in the body, it can be really hard to assess whether uh, uh, you're actually seeing any real impact of these therapeutics. So, so this idea of measures and tools and biomarkers, you may have heard us talk about ways of measuring the underlying disease biology. These are just really critical needs for the field. And so, so we're gonna talk a little bit about some of what we're seeing as really critical uh, approaches for thinking about how we can measure and track uh, the underlying disease uh, of Parkinson's. So uh, uh, Jamie, I'm gonna switch to you. Uh, you're our sort of leading expert on a really important type of measure in particular, which is this idea of being able to image the brain, sort of what's going on under the hood, as I like to often say. Uh, and it's, I think, you know, really exciting that we're seeing some real, real progress, I think, recently in our ability to detect some of the important biology linked to Parkinson's. So I wonder if you could kind of walk us through that, what some of that exciting progress is. Sure. Thanks, Brian. So as, as Brian mentioned, uh, we believe that these different types of biomarkers are really critical for drug development. We want objective ways of measuring the, pro the progression of the disease, even the presence of the disease, so diagnostic markers, the progression of the disease as a patient, um, uh, as the disease advances and the symptoms become more severe, and then also response to treatment, um, objective ways of knowing if a treatment is working. So by objective, I, I mean, we don't want to just rely on assessing symptoms, um, because symptoms vary from day to day, even at different times during the day and different clinicians um, will assess symptoms differently. It's subjective. So we want objective markers. Um, and one type of marker would be a brain scan, imaging markers. And there are different types of brain scans. Um, one that we think is really critical and would be um, a game changer for Parkin Parkinson's therapeutic development would be a way of seeing alpha-synuclein in the brain. So as Shalini mentioned, alpha-synuclein is a protein that accumulates in clumps in the brain in Parkinson's disease. And as the disease progress progresses, it spreads. And that spread is associated with worsening symptoms. So if we could actually image alpha-synuclein in the brain, we could then image patients um, periodically to see how that alpha-synuclein is changing. So it could initially be a diagnostic marker. We could see, is there alpha-synuclein in the brain? Maybe we can see it even before there are symptoms, and we could potentially, if we have a therapy, prevent symptoms from ever developing. 
Um, but then we could also use this to see how the alpha-synuclein spreads over time. So we've been supporting um, work to develop a, a brain scan, a PET scan, to image alpha-synuclein for over a decade now. It, it's a very challenging thing to do, but over the last couple years, we've seen some real progress, and it's really exciting. Um, it, it, you know, at some point, you start to think maybe this isn't even possible to do. It's difficult. Maybe it's not even possible. But now we've got some real hope, and we believe it is possible. And, um, and so I'd like to tell you about what, what has happened just this year. One of the companies that we've been supporting called AC Immune, they're a Swiss company, has been working on developing an alpha-synuclein pet tracer for um, a number of years now, and we've been supporting that work. And a pet tracer is, you can think of it as, as a drug that um, contains a, a radioactive label. And you inject the, the drug into a patient, it goes into the brain, and it targets alpha-synuclein. So it binds to alpha-synuclein. And then using a PET scanner, a type of brain scan, the areas that light up on the brain scan show where that radioactivity is. And the radioactivity is where the alpha-synuclein is. So it allows you to actually look into the brain. It's like a window into the brain, the living brain, and um, see the pathology. So AC Immune um, tested their pet tracer in humans over the past year. They tested it in both um, patients with Parkinson's disease, um, subjects that didn't have any kind of neurological disease, and then patients with a disease called multiple system atrophy, or MSA, which is um, often mistook for Parkinson's disease early on because they um, share similar symptoms. So it's, it's often difficult to diagnose MSA early on because it gets misdiagnosed as Parkinson's disease. Um, but then as the disease progresses, which is usually pretty rapid in MSA, it's an it's a aggressive disease, um, one realizes that, oh, no, it's not Parkinson's disease at all, and we shouldn't be treating this patient like they have Parkinson's disease because <clears throat> they won't respond to that type of treatment. So when AC Immune tested their PET tracer, they found that they, they didn't really see anything in the Parkinson's patients. So they, didn't, they looked at the brain scans, and it didn't look like anything. Um, they didn't see any radioactivity that accumulated, suggesting that um, either the tracer doesn't work or there's no alpha-synuclein there. But then when they tested their tracer in MSA patients, they saw that on the brain scans, they could see that it lit up. So if you look at the image on the screen, these are from two patients with MSA. The, um, there's on the left, it's, it's two levels in the brain. So it's, it's the same brain, but two different um, parts of the brain. And you can see on the bottom two images that there's these areas of, of red and, and yellow, that is alpha-synuclein in the brain. And this is the first time that we've been actually able to image alpha-synuclein pathology in a living human. So it's really exciting. The fact that we didn't see any in Parkinson's disease, that's less exciting, that's disappointing, but, um, but this does show us that it's possible to image alpha-synuclein in the brain. Why didn't it work in Parkinson's disease? We don't know, but um, there are at least a couple potential reasons. One is, as I mentioned, MSA is a very aggressive disease. It progresses rapidly. And we think that there just may be more pathology in the brain. And so um, it's easier to see it on a PET scan, that we would need something more sensitive in order to um, see alpha-synuclein at lower levels. And the lower levels may be in, in Parkinson's patients, especially early in the disease. So um, the fact that it does work in, in MSA is extremely exciting for the field. Um, and I think it's, it's really kind of been a shot in the arm for other groups that are working on developing an alpha-synuclein pet tracer. Because again, it shows that it's possible to do, and we think we're getting close. And in fact, the Fox Foundation is funding several groups that are ready to test their pet tracers in Parkinson's patients later this year. Um, there's at least three groups. And we just need one of those to work. Maybe all three work. Maybe none of them do. But we're really hopeful that, um, that we'll have some more good news later in the year. But I think this was really a big step forward for the field.
Yeah, no, I mean, you and I were at a, a conference earlier in the year where we, we saw some of these first results presented. And I just remember the sort of almost like, you know, gasp in the room sort of sense that we might finally have something that that could detect, you know, snookling in a, in a living human brain and, and just the excitement. I think, you know, you've spent so many years, I think, as a is our internal champion on this. And it's just it's so great to see this kind of progress happening and obviously more work, more work to come as you, as you, as you said, but, but certainly a great milestone for the field. So. I'm um, pretty sure I cried during that meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that I, maybe before we talk about some other types of me measurements, I, I know Jamie leads a, a, an effort here at the foundation too, that's really about trying to um, um, help support um, uh, different types of imaging agents and, Brain imaging is such, I think, a critical tool um, for our ability to really measure and track the disease. And so it's something the foundation has really put a lot of effort in. And, and Jamie's been a, a, a leader in, in really moving this forward. So, so we're excited to see that continued investment. Uh, now, besides brain imaging, there are some other types of measurements that we're really excited to, to see advancing. And these are more sort of traditional um, sort of blood-based or other, you know, or, uh, other kinds of body fluid type uh, measurements. Uh, biochemical measurements of, of the different uh, aspects of Parkinson's disease biology. Um, there's a really promising technique that we're, uh, we're, we're, we've been supporting and, and we're seeing some real advances in that can detect, similar to how Jamie describing able to see alpha-synuclein in protein in the brain, uh, some ways to detect that synuclein protein in other body fluids, and in particular, being able to detect forms of that protein that we think are more pathological, sort of more like the type of, 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 of sort of bad, if you will, alpha-synuclein that can happen in, in, in the brains of people with Parkinson's. And there's a, a, a tool called a seeding assay, which basically has the ability to detect whether uh, someone's snuclein is um, particularly sticky, if you will, is maybe one way to think about it, where uh, if you uh, uh, run it through this test, it'll sort of show whether that person's snuclein tends to clump. Uh, versus someone who maybe has a sort of normal uh, snuclein in their in their in their body, and so uh, that test is really showing some real promise, and it's helping us to think a little bit about how we can better um, identify people who we think have more of this sort of robust kind of snuclein uh, uh, flavor of Parkinson's disease, uh, and that could be a really powerful tool in addition to the brain imaging uh, to find people uh, who would be most um, appropriate for treatments that target that biology. So, so again, in parallel, I think this, these biochemical tests along with the advances we're seeing in imaging are gonna be really, really critical and powerful as we continue to move the field forward. We wanna just maybe pause for a moment because a lot of the work that you've heard, especially the work you know, uh, around biomarkers and different ways of measuring Parkinson's have really come from a, a, you know, a great deal of work over the last uh, number of years, but in particular from a study that the foundation launched a little over 10 years ago uh, called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI. Uh, and this study is really important. It's been following people um, newly diagnosed with Parkinson's, uh, but then several years ago, we started adding in people who don't yet have the symptoms of Parkinson's, but carry certain risk factors. Uh, and this study has really allowed us to truly understand the progression of the disease. So that again, if you remember that first slide I showed about how Parkinson's is progressive, being able to actually measure that and track that and understand that I think has been really critical. And PPMI has been just foundational in our ability to really understand that with lots of data coming from it. Um, it's exciting because the, the, the study is still looking for, for volunteers. So if you are uh, if, you, if you are someone newly diagnosed with Parkinson's who is not yet on medication, uh, we, we invite you to sort of check out the links in your resource page to, to get more information about the study. Uh, but even if you're not someone who's newly diagnosed with the disease, if you're someone who has Parkinson's already for a few years, as well as if you are, as long as you're 18 years in, uh, uh, older uh, in the U.S., um, you can actually join the study even if you don't have Parkinson's because we're really interested in understanding uh, and identifying uh, factors that may uh, uh, lead to sort of risk for Parkinson's disease as well. So uh, check out this link uh, if you want to join. We have a, a also, in addition to the, the, the core PPMI study, we have what is called PPMI Online, which allows you to sort of join this larger study as well. So uh, take a look, get more information, and uh, we, uh, we uh, would love to have um, more people participating in this study. 
All right, so we're going to switch gears a little bit. And again, you know, we've talked a lot about you know people with the disease who have the symptoms and how we can sort of help address some of those symptoms, how we can measure some of that biology, uh, obviously how we hopefully maybe might be able to slow down some of that biology uh, in people with Parkinson's. But but we know the disease starts many years before the the motor symptoms really show up, and so. Uh, there's a lot we're trying to understand about risk for Parkinson's. And so, uh, uh, Katie, we're going to switch to you and kind of help us walk through this. Like, what what are we talking about when we think about understanding risk for Parkinson's? And, and what are we looking to detect? And and why is it so important? Yes. The, the good news is that uh, we are listening more to the Parkinson's community. And if you're living with Parkinson's, Parkinson's is in your family, you don't wake up one day and have it. There's a constellation of symptoms that are accumulating that force somebody to say, hey, I need to see a doctor about this. And the idea here and, and what we're learning, especially from PPMI, thank you for those of you that are participating in this study, it's a gift. What we are learning is that the biologic process of Parkinson's disease can start many years, even decades before the onset of symptoms. Um, and the onset of symptoms are not just those motor symptoms that uh, push somebody to a neurologist to get a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, but some of those symptoms, which you see on the slide here, um, <clears throat> include non-motor symptoms like issues with sleep, constipation, loss of smell. So. The opportunity that the field is excited about and the Michael J. Fox Foundation is excited about is to better biologically define Parkinson's disease at its earliest stages. So there, there might be an opportunity to intervene. Either, you know, we've talked a lot about pharmacologic or drug treatments for Parkinson's disease, but even intervene with very serious lifestyle changes for people that better understand their risk for Parkinson's because of genetic factors, um, because of biologic factors like the seeding assay, Brian, that you mentioned, or environmental exposures like exposures to pesticides uh, or traumatic brain injury. So the opportunity that we have as a field to learn more about how we how we classify Parkinson's as a disease, how we make it more objective, like what Dr. Eberling was talking about, and try to do that early is opening up a whole world of possibility in terms of treating Parkinson's early before symptoms start, before symptoms worsen. And I'd like to point out also that prevention also can mean lots of things to different people. So this could also be preventing worsening of symptoms, even if you already have the disease, or preventing more advanced symptoms that, that can come with longer duration of living with Parkinson's disease. But it's all anchored to this piece of biology and how do we better biologically define the disease and then find the right treatments for the right people at the right time. So, yeah, I think this, you know, finding people at this sort of early stage, I think, is really critical. And and, and I, I think it's important, like you said, you know, prevention can mean a lot of different things, you know, where you are in your sort of progressive journey. It's, you know, trying to prevent you from getting further down that road uh, as best we can. And uh, could you talk, though, a little bit about I know one, you know, important direction we're headed is this idea of how do you how do you think about designing the right kind of study to actually do that, to actually sort of find those individuals and, and potentially offer them something that could slow, you know, prevent that further progression. So if you could talk a little bit more about that. Yes, there's there's a lot of excitement here and a lot of different smart people thinking about this, pro this problem and opportunity globally. One way that the Michael J. Fox Foundation in partnership with, with uh, clinician scientists in the PPMI study are thinking about it, is understanding those individuals who, who are likely at risk for Parkinson's and then in, in developing a, or getting a diagnosis of Parkinson's in the next two to three years and trying to map out what are those risk factors that would make somebody not likely to develop Parkinson's in 10 years um, or 20 years, but rather those individuals who are likely to develop Parkinson's in two to three years. Um, we think some of those measures include things like 
changes in DAT scan. Um, it could it could include um, this uh, seeding assay measure, something that is getting more proximal to the onset of, of motor symptoms. And um, within the context of the, the PPMI study, trying to design clinical trials that may be able to test interventions and understand whether they prevent uh, further changes in biomarkers like DATSCAN or uh, uh, you know, prevent worsening of uh, motor and non-motor symptoms, uh, uh, ultimately preventing a diagnosis of what we know today as, as motor or Parkinson's disease. Um, there are other studies that are also um, upcoming that the Fox Foundation is going to be supporting, also looking at lifestyle interventions um, at people at earlier stages of risk because of genetic factors um, or other lifestyle factors that don't necessarily have that two to three year uh, horizon of, of risk, but a longer uh, a potential for risk so that there's opportunity to develop a really robust set of tools that people hopefully in the future will have to arm themselves to live well with Parkinson's now, prevent getting it um, no matter where they might be in, in uh, a, a biologic state of Parkinson's disease. It's so really exciting, I think, for us to even be even conceptualizing this idea that we could potentially do this. And, you know, I feel like advances in the last few years have really positioned us, uh, you know, with, I think, almost a real opportunity to, to try this out. So it's exciting that we're able to leverage some of the um, um, infrastructure we have in place to actually potentially do this and try it out. So uh, really exciting. Progress. And I'll highlight also that we're not just building on learning and infrastructure in Parkinson's disease, but we're taking cues from other other diseases. There has been this approach in the Alzheimer's field. Brain health overall is becoming increasingly important and across different types of diseases. How do you promote healthy aging? And so we're learning a lot about this opportunity to, to promote better brain health. I think there's a guide that's also listed in the, the resources here. Uh, about ways that you could intervene and promote healthy brain aging right now. Great. Um, so you, you've heard a lot about sort of the advances, you know, and uh, panelists have, have touched on from therapeutics to measurement to maybe even slowing down in prevention. Um, there's still a lot uh, of work needed uh, and a lot of ways that you actually can, can get involved in that. So we've listed a few things here, uh, the ways that you can sort of stay connected in the community, uh, join some of these initiatives, some of these efforts, uh, consider participation in PPMI, you can join Team Fox, you can register for you know, some of the events uh, that are related to that. You have a buddy network for those who, who have Parkinson's and wanna connect with, with people like them. Um, an important advance though this year that we're really, really excited about is uh, uh, what is called the National Plan to End Parkinson's Act. And this is actually an act that is going through Congress right now. It's been presented both in the House and the Senate uh, that really is seeking to sort of elevate the uh, importance of ending Parkinson's at the congressional level. And this has been uh, work that's been uh, led in particular by members of our policy team here at the foundation uh, for quite a while. And we're just really excited to, to know that this is potentially, uh, uh, you know, something that will actually be um, uh, an act if, if Congress is able to pass it. And so it's a, the, the, the bill is really um, about uh, trying to uh, sort of build, I think, more resource and awareness around Parkinson's disease uh, at, the, at the congressional level. And so we're really excited that this could be passed and hopefully maybe this year, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but we need your voice. So we need your help in sort of really advocating for, 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 this, uh, for this act. And so, so far uh, more than six, 6,500 people have uh, have been sort of reaching out to Congress, but uh, we can always have more. So uh, you can uh, find in your resource list information for how you can add your voice uh, to to uh, let Congress know how important um, uh, ending Parkinson's really is. And uh, hopefully, we can get this 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 act passed. A landmark study that could change the way Parkinson's disease is diagnosed, managed, and treated is recruiting participants now. PPMI, or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, needs people with and without Parkinson's, especially people aged 16 up who have close relatives living with the disease. 
Take a short survey today at michaeljfox.org slash ppmi to see if you're eligible. That's michaeljfox.org slash ppmi. So uh, let's move on. I think to we're ready now to start answering all your questions. So uh, really excited to, to do this. So uh, our team here has been, I uh, hopefully been posting some, uh, some questions in the Q and A uh, box. Our team here has been going through and, and sort of um, uh, collating some of these. So we're gonna go through a few questions and maybe I wanted to start off with a question that I know we get a lot, <laughs> which is um, the role uh, or the importance of stem cells in Parkinson's disease and, and why stem cells might offer benefit. And maybe I'll pause for a moment, just you know, for those of you who, who, who don't know um, kind of what stem cells are. These are cells in our bodies that have the potential for being converted into any other type of cell in the body. So sort of the, the classic stem cell, sort of the stem cell of all stem cells, of course, is the embryonic stem cell that we all come from uh, when we're first born. But um, there are other types of stem cells that can be uh, uh, accessed and developed too, including different types of techniques people have used to, to create stem cells, even from you know, adult tissues like you know, skin tissue and uh, other types of uh, body tissues. So it's really exciting that we have this ability to use stem cell technology to convert them into, at least for Parkinson's disease, an important cell type that we would like to replace, which are dopamine cells. Uh, and so this idea that you could take a stem cell, make new dopamine cells, and then transplant those back into the brain of someone with Parkinson's uh, to help deliver more dopamine is a really powerful idea that's been looked at for a number of years now. Um, so, Shalini, I, I know we've done some work here. We have some investments here. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the a recent projects, uh, a project that we've supported that is trying to do this and and why we think it's a you know a worthwhile idea to try out. Sure. So I think there's a lot of interest um, in this area, right? About uh, around stem cells and Brian, as you highlighted, it is currently being tested as a replacement strategy. Uh, I would say mostly um, with potentially you know seeing if there could be disease modifying effects. But I think at this point, it's mainly kind of to see if we can actually replace dopamine or restore cells in that general vicinity where the cells are lost in Parkinson's disease. There are many different approaches, and I think you highlighted one, Brian. I feel, I mean, stem cells, you can take a healthy stem cell and convert it into a dopamine neuron and then inject that in the brain uh, for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and we're doing, we have a couple of studies here, one that we had previously kind of supported that's now going on uh, to clinical trials, you know, with Blue Rock, um, and another one that we just supported this year um, with Arizona University, where they're actually injecting dopamine neurons into a particular, in, into a population of Parkinson's disease patients where motor, where motor disease is the primary cause of the Parkinson's disease. And so there are a couple of different um, studies, at least with this strategy, but the other approach is actually taking patients' own cells and converting that into dopamine neurons. So it's more of a personalized medicine type of approach this, of course, would be more expensive, you know, would take time, but this is also something that's being tested uh, by another company. And a third, of course, you know, is um, you just inject undifferentiated stem cells. And this is where I think, you know, we should be very, very careful about, you know, what's being marketed out there because we definitely don't want to, you know, take something that's not being tested. And so I, we would always, you know, kind of caution, you know, put like a word of caution, especially if you're being asked to pay for some of these treatments, it's something that you should definitely discuss uh, with your doctor. Yeah, no, so yeah. So again, I, the way I often like to frame it, it's, you know, I think it's a potentially, you know, groundbreaking type of approach if obviously if you could replace what is lost in the brain of someone with Parkinson's disease in the, in the context of these dopamine producing cells. Um, but it's still, I think, early days. And so we're excited that we're seeing progress, like you said, and there's a few companies with treatments and clinical testing and, and, and some, some work even that we're funding on this, but, but it's still, there's nothing approved right now. And I think uh, there are a lot of, unfortunately, there are a lot of clinics out there that are offering, you know, quote unquote, stem cell therapy um, that, I, you know, if anybody's looking at those, I think it's just really important that you talk to your doctor first, that you kind of really understand what those clinics are truly offering before before assuming that it's um, you know a, a treatment that will that will actually help your Parkinson's disease. Um, all right, so uh, looking at the uh, more questions here, and we have a couple more sort of therapeutic uh, ones. 
Uh, there was a, a question about um, the use of focus ultrasound, and I'm going to use this maybe as an opportunity to kind of back up higher level for a second and just talk about the idea of, you know, we talked early on a lot about the different types of traditional drug treatments for Parkinson's, so, you know, replacing dopamine, for example, or other types of brain chemicals that might help with the symptoms of Parkinson's. But uh, another type of uh, approach that is, you know, uh, that it have has been approved for use in Parkinson's disease involves the idea of using technology to sort of um, uh, uh, modulate the brain circuitry uh, that is affected in Parkinson's disease. And so there's one approach called deep brain stimulation, which uses, it's kind of like a pacemaker for the brain in a way that uses a stimulator that gets implanted along with sort of an electrode that goes into a part of the brain uh, that sort of provides a signal to help sort of um, uh, modulate the circuits that are impacted in Parkinson's and, and can actually improve movement uh, in individuals who, who receive this, this surgery. Um, there's another type of approach that uses uh, a slightly different twist, which is rather than kind of stimulating the brain, goes in and tries to actually um, uh, sort of remove a small portion of the brain, sort of lesioning it, as they say. Uh, and this was actually a surgical technique that was developed years ago and was used early on in the disease. Uh, but more recently, um, technology has advanced where now they can do this using something called focused ultrasound. So it uses sound waves that are just sort of, you know, directed to a very specific spot in the brain. Uh, so you don't have to sort of do the usual open up, you know, the skull type of brain surgery. You can just do this with the focus ultrasound and it can sort of lesion a portion of the brain that, you know, somewhat similarly can sort of impact the underlying circuit um, that is impacted in Parkinson's and provides some, some potential relief in motor symptoms and, and other types of um, uh, movement symptoms in Parkinson's. So these two techniques, sort of neuromodulatory type techniques, I think have been really powerful additions uh, to, to the way we can think about um, treating Parkinson's. Um, but focus ultrasound is kind of interesting because it offers maybe some other opportunities as well. In addition to this lesioning approach, people are thinking about it uh, in other ways as well. And I was going to maybe uh, either, I don't know, Katie or Jamie, if you want to jump in about, you know, what are some of the ways that people are thinking about focus ultrasound beyond that sort of just traditional uh, lesioning approach? I mean, I can say that um, one way um, that's being explored is you can actually use focus ultrasound to make a small opening in the blood-brain barrier. That's this protective brain barrier that, um, that prevents toxins from entering the brain but it also prevents some types of therapies from getting into the brain well enough to have an effect. Um, one example would be um, growth factors. It's been explored for the delivery of growth factors, which are extremely difficult to get into the brain without surgery. Um, so this would be a way of making a small opening in the blood-brain barrier and getting these growth factors into the brain to have um, hopefully trophic um, restorative effects. Um, now, there's nothing that's, it's not very advanced. It's something that's been explored, but um, there's certainly more work to do. But it could also be used to get um, other types of therapeutics, like antibodies don't get into the brain all that well. It could increase the, um, the how well um, antibodies get into the brain and make perhaps make them more effective. And I should also just point out that this opening in the blood-brain barrier is not permanent. So it's a, it's a temporary opening that then closes again. So um, I think there's still work to be done to know how safe that is, but, um, but there's not at this point a reason to think that it would be um, necessarily not safe. Right, right, right. And yeah, this idea then again, of using a technique like that to help deliver drugs that normally wouldn't really make it into the brain, I think could be really powerful and a real advance for uh, for, for how, ways to treat Parkinson's. Uh, Katie, I know you've spoken maybe to some of these groups that, that, that are trying this type of work. I don't know if you have any other insight you want to wanna add. That was a great summary. I know there are a lot of questions. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. 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 So let's. Um, uh, there were some questions here that kind of relate, I think, broadly to some of the types of measurement tools that are available out there. And I think one of the exciting sort of advances in measurement, in addition to the, the great uh, exciting advances that Jamie talked about in brain imaging, is the idea of using sort of wearable approaches. So, you know, the things we wear on our wrist and sort of carry in our pockets and other types of ways that we can sort of measure uh, Parkinson's disease with these approaches. And, 
and Katie, I know you've you've had sort of a long history, I think, at the foundation and you know working in some of these spaces. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how we're thinking about the use of sort of digital wearables as a, a, a tool for for measuring Parkinson's. Sure, it's a you know the, the sexy new thing. Everybody's wearing watches and has smartphones, and so there's a lot of enthusiasm, not just from um, Michael J. Fox Foundation, who helped incentivize focus in this area early, but there's many, many groups working in this space. And I think there's probably two flavors of um, groups looking at uh, wearable measurement tools, because there could also be wearable tools that stimulate uh, various nerves or parts of your body to, to treat the disease. But in the measurement space, many groups are looking at wearable devices that provide um, insight into accelerometers, gyroscopes that look at the movement of somebody and give a more fine-tuned and continuous picture of what someone's um, Parkinson's movements look like that is helping design smarter clinical trials and, and helping groups decide, is this treatment worth moving from a phase one to a phase two clinical trial or phase two to phase three, because you have a more sensitive and continuous way of measuring this. Um, flipping from the research to the care space, there are also groups that are invested in looking at this continuous measurement uh, of, of somebody's uh, motor symptoms largely and then trying to time that with sort of an e-diary of when did you take your medication? How well is that medication working? And trying to move the Parkinson's field from where we are today, which is seeing a, a specialist or a doctor once or twice a year to, to optimize the Parkinson's treatments that someone's receiving to where the diabetes field is, where you take you know, daily uh, blood sugars and you're able to um, empower patients to really monitor their disease um, and and take control of the the ways that they understand their medications are working and have smarter conversations with doctors. So nothing is is uh, at the point that this is the one that everybody should be using, but the field is moving in both those directions, better measurements for smarter clinical trials and in, in, in the context of research, and then also pairing those measurements with a real life experience of, of living with Parkinson's and being able to um, better translate movements into, you know, care. Yeah. So again, and as these continue to advance, I think it's just exciting to see the different ways they could be used, sometimes maybe in ways that we don't fully appreciate today that mm -hmm. later on could end up being really, really, really groundbreaking. Um, so uh, a few minutes still left, and I'm noticing a number of questions people have around sort of different uh, sort of pathways, biology linked to Parkinson's and how we're sort of thinking about that in the context of different treatments. You know, how do you deliver, you know, the way we tend to think of it is how do you deliver the right treatment to the right patient based on their form of Parkinson's disease? So, so uh, uh, Shalini, I might have you help sort of help me with this as we sort of think about the different kind of biologies that have been you know, linked to Parkinson's. You know, we've talked a little bit about obviously alpha-synuclein um, there are other types of uh, pathways that have been associated, like inflammation and things like that. How are we looking at these different pathways in the context of developing therapies for Parkinson's? Maybe you could touch a little bit about that. No, Brian. So I think, I mean, the ultimate goal really for us is to match the right person to the right clinical trial and maybe at the right stage of their disease, as you correctly highlighted, you know, during the introduction here. So I feel like we've made tremendous progress with, you know, therapeutics, you know, lots of uh, drugs in clinical trials, but we're seeing that many of them actually fail, right, in clinical trials. And we don't understand if they're failing because the mechanism isn't right or if they're not being tested in the right patient population. And so a lot of, um, and I think also with our increased understanding of what Parkinson's disease is, and what the triggers are, what we're learning, of course, is that no two people have the same Parkinson's, right? So kind of trying to understand what is unique to a particular person or what is their subtype, really. So we believe, at least internally now, that there are you know, some subtypes of Parkinson's disease. We don't know how many and how they can be classified, because you can think about subtypes as somebody who has like a motor-dominant subtype or a non-motor-dominant subtype. 
But you can also think about that at a very basic biology level, right? What's the mechanism that's contributing to their Parkinson's? Or how many different mechanisms do we really have within Parkinson's disease? I would say despite years and years of uh, research, I think we're narrowing down on the same four or five mechanisms that keep you know, coming up over and over again. And one is around protein aggregation or clumping, you know, and that can be synuclein or it can be other proteins as well. A second one is, as I mentioned, you know, around the energy producing um, uh, components of your cell, which are the mitochondria. So around mitochondrial mechanisms. The third one is around lysosomes or the recycling centers of your um, cell and how can you better improve kind of the health. The fourth one is around immune regulation or your immune system, so inflammation-related um, endpoints. So I think these are kind of, we all agree that these all play a role in some way in Parkinson's disease, but when they kick in or what happens first and what comes later is still kind of, you know, topic that we are, you know, researching and learning more uh, about. But I think what we're trying to do now is, you know, trying to identify drugs that target many of these mechanisms. So we have as I mentioned, we have um, drugs that are actually targeting the mitochondria to improve mitochondrial health, targeting lysosomes, targeting immune system. When you think about mitochondria or immune system, it's just not one thing that you can target. There are multiple aspects of that pathway or mechanism that you can target. So we're trying to kind of, you know, get a holistic view of what that mechanism is in Parkinson's disease and see, you know, what makes sense to target when, at what stage of the disease. And then more importantly, trying to identify you know, in that broad population that we call the idiopathic PD population, what are the different subtypes that are actually present? So do we have a mitochondrial subtype of patients and can we direct them to the mitochondrial therapies? And do we have, you know, a LERC2 or a lysosomal subtype that, you know, would be better benefit from LERC2 or lysosomal therapies? So that's kind of a major effort at the foundation. And it's not only in the preclinical space, but studies like PPMI and many patient-driven studies are actually contributing to our understanding of these subtypes and are driven by also, you know, technological advances. So I maybe pause, stop there because I feel there's a lot we can discuss in yeah. the space, but there's a lot of interesting work that's coming along. Yeah, along yeah and this, this, certainly this idea of precision medicine, I think, is something that's uh, that we're excited to see uh, move forward. So in the last, uh, uh, we have like one or two minutes left, uh, I might sort of invite the panelists um, maybe highlight sort of one thing you would love the audience to sort of take away from today, sort of maybe maybe what you thought was the most exciting thing this year or an advance that you're really looking forward to. And maybe I'll, I, uh, Katie, I'll, I'll start with you just because you're sort of top of my screen. Uh, what yeah. would you, uh, and anybody who knows me probably knows what I'm going to say. Um, I, I think broadly the, um, the emerging biomarkers um, there's been just so much progress made in the last two years, the, the assay that Brian spoke about, but then, of course, the imaging, the alpha-synuclein imaging in particular. And I think that we'll see more progress pretty quickly in that area. And I think my dream of having an alpha-synuclein PET tracer that works in Parkinson's isn't far off. Katie, what about you? I'm excited that we know more about Parkinson's disease than ever before because of research participation. And no amount of, of research funding is gonna bring new treatments to the community without participation in clinical trials. So I'm excited about the awareness of clinical trials that's been raised through the COVID experience. And I'm very grateful for everybody that's been willing to raise their hand to participate in online surveys um, or in-person clinical trials. Thank you for that gift. You're making our understanding of Parkinson's disease immensely more rich and patient-centered. Shalini, fine with you. Yeah, I can't, I can't beat those two. So okay. maybe just for, to provide some variety, I would say, I mean, there's a lot of studies going on around genetics. I mean, what we learned about genetics 20 years ago is kind of just the tip of the iceberg. And I feel now, you know, with the studies like GP2, you know, we're going to learn much more about the genetic causes of Parkinson's disease, and it may not be just one or two genes. There may be kind of a mix of genes that may be contributing to different people's Parkinson's. So I'll leave you with that, and that's something that's super exciting. Great, great, great. So with that, we'll, we'll close today at the uh, top of the hour. So again, thanks for participating. Uh, uh, hopefully this has been helpful to you and informative to you. Again, check out the, the resources that we provided, including that year in review publication, which, which touches on some of the, the advances that we talked about today, if you want to kind of refresh your memory a little bit about what we discussed. And again, uh, just wish you a, a, a happy end of the year and uh, look forward to uh, um, uh, talking to all of you again. Thank you. 
Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.